raise a couple more to the revolution. We have only three words for you. Uh-oh. We're taking over. Ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, welcome to another edition of the Q Zero Theater Cast. This is your host, Artistic Director Dan Pelletier, here today with the Q Zero Brain Trust, featuring Marjorie Boyer. Hey! And Tom Lott. What's up, y'all? Now, we've uh, been on a little bit of a hiatus because things here at Q Zero have been pretty hectic. We're so tired. We're so busy. Yeah, we've got a lot going on between proof and. Gorilla Shakespeare and the Playwright Circle and planning next season was that uh, unfortunately, you know, we just haven't had the time to sit down and record more podcasts, but we're going to try to get back on our regular weekly schedule, especially the last episode we put out, which was part one of our March Madness, which we're, which is now probably going to become Mayhem. Uh, ah. Our bracket ah. debating the shows that need more love. Thank you to everybody that actually slogged through the two-hour episode. We're going to try to make the rest of round one maybe two uh, one-hour episodes or something like that, and then we'll get some audience feedback. And All seven of our listeners have uh, gotten in touch with us about that episode, and they were like, yeah, it was long. So, yeah, yeah. so we, we're gonna we try hear to you. It was long for us, too. It was a three-hour recording session that was turned <laughs> yeah. into a, a, an hour or hour 50 podcast. It was a long night, um, so we're going to try to make some healthier, better quality content there. Hey, we're still in the experimental phase. Most podcasts don't get good until like episode 100, so thank you for being here as part of the, uh, you know, the pilot season here as we work out the kinks. Um, So, Marjorie made such a fun face when I said kinks. I did not expect that to come out of your mouth. It was fine. Yeah, I'd be okay with you never saying that word again. All right. So while we're here tonight, um, and rather than diving right back into our heavy hitter uh, mayhem bracket or whatever you want to call it now, uh, we're actually just going to have like a little fun discussion of shows we could go the rest of our life without seeing another production of. Uh, So overdone shows, shows that we feel don't deserve the love they get, whether it's an overrated show, a show you just can't stand, uh, and just, you know, not that we want to be too negative. Anyway, so just shows that we, uh, again, yeah, I think just everyone does, and maybe why everyone does them, and why we think they just need to be done less. It's a catch-22. And then uh, we'll probably wrap up with more of Marjorie's lovely, delightful, bad Broadway fan fiction. Woo! BBFF. James uh, Thomas Misoda. Yeah, nice harmonies there. Um, so, I will open the floor up if either of you would like to throw a show into the ring for scrutiny. What is a show that you think needs to be done less? What show is overdone? And could you go the rest of your theater career with never seeing or working on or being in a sh- that show ever again? I feel like Tom and I have the least opinions on this out of the three of us. <laughs> well, that's why I'm opening with the, with the two of you. What's the show that just you're like, again, really? Mamma Mia? Yeah, oh, all right, so... I feel like that's a very... I will come right out the gate with that one. Not that's that we want to insult that's anybody, fair. but there is probably... Like 50 productions of Mamma Mia happening all at the same time, and they have been for the past year. Yeah, like, since the rights came out, every theater and... Their 
cousin have been doing Mamma Mia. And not that there's anything wrong with Mamma Mia. It's actually a pleasant little show. It was actually smarter than I thought it would be. No, but that's a good answer. I didn't think of that just because it's it's everywhere. Everyone's if you doing. haven't done Mamma Mia, welcome to the minority. Yeah, like. Well, Dan and I were at the bar this past weekend, and they started playing ABBA, and we just looked at each other because we're still traumatized from how long we had to listen to it working at the palace. Oh, literally yeah. a year ago. The ABBA tribute I had to work last night. Oh, I worked yeah. at that was, as well. Oof. <laughs> That was a fun throwback. So I think this is... Back to the war. A segue into an interesting topic. Not just Mamma Mia, but just like when the rights come out for that mega hit show and then every theater seems to put it in their no, season. I'm surprised that hasn't happened for Heathers yet. It, it kind of did, but I feel like mm. Heathers is a little edgier. I only know one production of Heathers that happened and it was a youth production. No, like, there's definitely been... Th- no, I can think of at least three productions of Heathers in the state of New Hampshire. Four. I can think Four. Huh. Tom Pe- and I are making strange faces, Peacock. listeners, because we think yeah, Dan's so full of shit. Peacock, Peacock. Peacock players did it. Frank Franklin did it. Seacoast Red did it as a youth show. Colby Sawyer College did it. And UNH is about to do a student production. UNH did it. Did a student production. So there's five. So Heather's was like borderline. It's blown up, but not to the same extent that way. Because it wasn't on Broadway, whereas like Mamma Mia was on Broadway for. Mamma Mia was also in Vegas for a very long years. time. And like the rights just came out and every theater hacked was trying to be like, oh, we got to be the first ones to do it. And everybody wasn't the first one. And now there's like, there's still like, it's been over a year and there's still like eight or nine productions of Mamma Mia ongoing as we record mm-hmm. this right now. And again, not that we want to poo poo on any production, but Right. Just, I get, I, and I get yeah. that it draws, and people want to see it, and people will want it to be in it forever. But it's just like, how do we avoid this happening with other shows when the rights come out for it? When it's that show that everybody's been dying to do, and then as the rights are coming out, and because very few of the, I mean, yes, like the Palaces was a professional production, but be, uh, I don't even think the Palace had exclusivity. No. no. So there can be multiple productions within the normal radius. You know, it's like when there's like the national tour of something or certain level of professional productions, they get like a 50-mile radius, sometimes even more. But with Mamma Mia, it was just everybody and their mother can get right. the rights because, you know, MTI is going to gobble up all those rights fees. Like, how do you, as a theater company answer that catch-22 of, well, everybody else is going to do it, but everybody else is doing it because it's going to draw and people want to be in it. Yeah, it's it's. I think it's a tough area to be. I think when it first started blowing up, I think a lot of companies were putting into thinking that they were going to be, like, the first mm. to hit it. And then they weren't. <laughs> yeah. Which, it, again, to reiterate, there's nothing wrong with the show. It's a good show. It's like it's it, the show's fine. It's fun. It's a fun one. It's a fun show. It knows what it is. Right. It doesn't try to be what it's not. It's like a better Lestat. <laughs> the, uh, uh, I mean, if you're into the like, the, it uses the songs well. It's not like some jukebox musicals that it's just like, hey, this is the song that you remember from 50 years ago. Um, like it integrates them into the plot. It, it's not afraid to use some of the the B tracks and the lesser known songs. Um, so it works as a jukebox musical, but again, at the same time, right. it's just 
To go back to the rights thing, I mean, yeah. it, I think this is something that we'll end up covering in a later podcast all about season picking and mm-hmm. rights and all that stuff. Um, I think you, there has to be a lot of thought that goes into what you're picking for a season. Yeah. And, you know, while we all want to think it's all about us, you have to put in a lot of consideration to what other companies are doing or could potentially do. Yeah. And, and I feel that, and take that into account as well. And that definitely, I mean, it doesn't happen enough, I think. I, I mean, I know, like... Uh, last year with my students at Central, uh, we were a week from, away from putting in for the rights to Pippin, and then we found out that four other places were doing Pippin within a 25-mile radius. And yeah, there's probably not a lot of overlap in the audiences from Central High School to Dairy Field to Actor Singers to St. A's and whoever the heck else, but I'm just like, ah, if there's there four other production of Pippin in reasonable driving distance i don't know if i want to be the fifth production of pippin in this spring and we ended up going with a different show and then even then we announced it and then like two weeks later uh majestic announced that they were also doing the wedding singer as their teen show so like no matter how hard you try there just was overlap and uh i mean it it worked out fine but i just think i wish more people did take some consideration it's happened with a couple of theaters i know where they're like Hey, inside information. These this is probably going to be our season, and I'm like, that's the both of those shows are the palaces season or our Gunkwit Playhouses season, and like, what are you in? You got to look beyond your own front door when you're picking your shows. I've got a short list of shows that I'd be okay with never seeing again, but it's also kind of a weird list. Well, let me hear, Marge. Give me your opinions. What would Marjorie never want to see again? I'd be good with never seeing Dog Sees God ever again. (laughs) Huh. I I would be good with never seeing Annie ever again because I feel like I've list. seen about eight there's nothing wrong with doing Annie I, my first show ever was Annie and it holds a special place in my heart but I am so Annie'd out mm. now I mean and yes what else is on your list I would also be okay with never seeing a production of Twelfth Night yeah yep I mean and to a degree almost Maine but I think that people can do so many different cuttings of almost Maine I guess Fine. So that one's like hovering on the edge of my list. Doxy's God wasn't on my list, but it's definitely a show I absolutely detest. I don't... And also, and this one's topical, yeah. uh, Thoroughly Modern Millie <laughs> well, can go away okay. forever. Well, we can... Let's let's discuss why each one of these right. shows might be on your list. Uh, Doxy's God, what do you think is the big... Is it... I mean, it's not a show that is overdone, it, like Annie would be. I would disagree. I feel like everybody... I know, has worked on a production of Dog, Dog Sea is God, and okay, very yeah. few, it has been a positive experience for very few. So what do you think attracts theater companies to doing it, and why do you not want to see it? I think if you misunderstand the script, your production will suck. And I think it's a difficult script to understand and interpret, especially from a director's point of view. Mm. And if you're not a super skilled director, or if you miss the point of what the piece is trying to say, which most people do, you're going to have a bad time. Now, in your opinion, should it be played straight and very, like, this is an important piece of theater? Or should it be played more satirical? I think there's a nuance to it, which Mm. I'm not... I'm honestly not familiar enough. I haven't dissected it as an actor or a director. I just know as an audience member, I'm really sick of seeing it done poorly. Yeah. For those of you that don't know, Doxy's God is this, I guess I would call it like a fringe take on the future 
of the characters of the world of the Peanuts and Charlie Brown. And it is very gritty. And I think my number one problem with it is I don't see any of these story arcs being the logical place where these characters would end up. Mm -hmm. I think it's very edgy for the sake of being edgy and trying to find as much dark crap as it can cram into a show. I just, like I said, I've never seen a well-done production, and I wish that, I just, I don't feel the need to see another yeah, one. I'm I've like, seen, Dog Sees mm-hmm. God Did It Out. I've seen some well, Dog I've seen like, Dog Sees God Did Out. I've seen some like, well-done chunks, but never like a full production that I've enjoyed. I mean, yeah. we've seen a, Marjorie, we saw a production together that I was just like, halfway through the show, I'm like, I hate it. I, I can't stand it. We should leave. Tom? Yeah, I mean, I, I don't mean to, sound negative or put this on anybody or like, you know, take away from anything, but I hate Dog Sees God. Mm. And to be completely honest, I think the script is garbage. Yeah. I think it... It's it pretentious. Tri- it is, it's pretentious and it tries to take on so many things and doesn't take on anything really well. Mm. And it doesn't really round anything out or give you anything that you're walking away with. And it's edgy just for the sake of being edgy. Yeah. And I think that's what draws people to it is, oh, it's edgy, so I have to do it. And it's it's not. I, I Personally, I don't think it's a well-written script. Um, so I wouldn't I didn't know I was opening this can or, of words. Or, you Get know. Lowered. My stops. Yeah, I mean, it's... Oh, there's just it. It tries. It, it tries. It. I will give it credit for it tries. It just. I think it misses the mark a yeah. lot. I mean, my my first complaint to me is that just the general concept. As you know, someone that is a fan of the Peanuts, I would say the the number one uh, reason why you can tolerate Charlie Brown as a character is he has one amazing redeeming quality. Charlie Brown never gives up hope. And then you start Dog Sees God by taking that away from him. And I really don't want to sit through 90 minutes of hopeless Charlie Brown. Like, and then, yeah, you're right. It's just like edgy, dark. It, to me, and it feels almost slapped on. Like, mm-hmm. I don't know. I mean, I kind of know the history of the piece, but to me, it feels like somebody wrote a bad play about like their high school experience that was very... Uh, over the top and not meant to be like dramatic satire instead of necessarily comedic satire and then it just didn't work so they got the idea to slap Charlie Brown on top mm-hmm. of it. We could go on and on for forever, forever. but let's go. So your next so show is Annie. So like there, again it's another one. I of understand why there are so many productions of Annie because quite frankly there are a lot of little girls out there who want to be on stage, and Annie caters to that. And it sells tickets. And it sells tickets. It moves tickets. It's a classic story. Like, it's cute. It's beloved. You can cram 50 people in the show. And it's iconic. Like, people will always come see Annie. Yeah. And I am one of those people who has always come to see Annie. Ergo, I have seen about a million productions of Annie. And, like, I think one of my bigger problems with Annie is a lot of the humor... In the show lies in 1930s topical references. And in like 20 years, how many of the Harpo Marx jokes are going to land? Right. Like, will there become a point where Annie will fall out of the rotation because that humor is lost? Or are people still going to be attracted to the story and the charmingness? We like to think it's this timeless piece that's always going to fit and it, it does it's set in its time yes and like but that's, really that's okay you can accept that and that's that's a totally fine piece to do it's just it, it 
But that's yeah. really interesting to see if it'll fall into like what we see with a lot of Odette's pieces, Waiting for Lefty, mm. uh, Golden Boy, where mm-hmm. it's a lot of it is just very topical to that time period where, yes, it enjoyed this huge crowd and like all these devoted like attendees in its day, but it dates itself. Mm. And once you reach a point where... You would think the themes are timeless, no, but they're not, they're not because they're too specific. The theme itself is timeless. Yeah. The idea of it's another Edward character who gets adopted and and then it's another stuff. character yeah. that right. doesn't give up hope. It's an American right. rags to riches story, oh, right? Mm-hmm. And that theme in itself is timeless. However, the way that it's set just yeah. doesn't. It's not going to like the references that are made. Time. Like you have to know. At what point is your general audience member going to understand that Herbert Hoover ruined the economy? Yeah, then I remember I remember being, and maybe this is just because I grew up in southern New Hampshire, but I remember being one of the orphans, and we had to stop and ask the director, because um, Molly has a line where it's like, make this place shine like the top of the Chrysler building, and we're like, is the top of that building shiny? Yeah. Like, what? Mm-hmm. Now, here, here's a question that I ask, more so with another show that I think is going to come up. On its own, is Annie a good show, or are a lot of people coming to it with their nostalgia goggles on? I definitely come at it with my nostalgia goggles on, so I can't even answer that question. So is it is just because I played Kate, the next to the Littlest Orphan? I had a solo. It was one of my first shows, and it sits very deeply in my. So heart. it's like it's an important part of your childhood, and that's why people come to it year I, and year and again. Yeah, I don't think it's it's not bad. Okay. I think no. it, I, it's it's not the best show. Yeah, it's I think it's a very solid middle ground to middle to high ground. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I think the reason that it's so popular with audiences is because of the nostalgia factor. And, and I think that takes of, it and pushes part it of their to the next. I also think it's the built-in aspect of it where it's, I don't think I've ever sought out a production of Annie, but I've gone to see it to go support, like, mm. oh, like I babysit the little girl who plays Molly. Yeah. Oh, Daddy Warbucks is a friend of mine. Like, oh, I know. It's You go, you go see the people that you know in Annie. Because, mm. like... A show that I want would throw into the the circle it would yeah. be Grease, and to me, Grease is n- the stage version of Grease is not a good show, and there's a lot of problems. For it's, those uh, of you playing along at home, the stage version of Grease is completely different than the movie right, version with Olivia right. New, uh, Olivia, yeah, Olivia John and John and John Travolta. Uh, completely. Yeah, there's a different. There's, the movie gets it right. Eh, the stage show gets it very. But wrong. I feel it's one of those things where like a lot of people grew up. Here's here's my train of thought is like Greece came out in the 70s mm-hmm. and it was supposed to be this nostalgia piece for people that grew up in the 50s so you had the people with the most disposable income were people that were teenagers in the 50s and the Greece came out in the 70s and they loved it and they shared it with their children so then it became a part of their childhood honestly that's why I do it mm-hmm. and then so then it be, and it continues being it's like oh yeah I grew up watching Greece but like the subplots are weird and the message is very muddled and it's supposed to be kind of mocking of the 1950s, and it's... Well, it suffers from the same thing that, like, the Mary Poppins... I recently rewatched Mary Poppins, and there are parts of that movie that I completely forgot. Mary Poppins herself doesn't show up for, like, 45 yeah. minutes, and I feel like that whenever I watch Grease, where I'm like, oh, Rizzo's pregnant, maybe. Yeah. Oh. Where it's like, I don't remember, what, like, thinking that as, like, a 10-year-old, just yeah. singing You're the One That I Want... And it just, I feel like, yeah, again, it, people, like, watch it, and it, it, it's not... It's like when I sit down and I watch Power Rangers on Netflix. I accept that it's not truly quality. 
uh, entertainment, but it was a part of my childhood and I really like the action sequences and it takes me to a place that nothing else can take me to. And I feel that happens with Grease, but it wasn't a part of my childhood. And I find some of the characters and the stereotypes to be dated and annoying. And again, I've been in Greece. I've seen like four or five productions of it. I just it, it had its time, but I just don't get the love because again, like it wasn't a vital part of my childhood. And when viewed without the nostalgia goggles, I'm like, the plot is thin, the music's okay. I think as America gets more and more progressive, Greece is gonna get left behind because yeah. it's getting really hard to justify putting a lot of that on stage. And, some, and for good reason. And people try to tell me, they're like, oh no, it's you gotta look at it through this subtext. But I'm like, I think you're- But let me raise this question. Okay. A lot of people go see it and they go, oh, that's not what I remember. Mm. And then they don't talk about it for a month or two and then they forget everything they learned. Yeah, I feel yeah. there's so a big part will of it actually die out or are people just going to forever continue to forget what happened and just keep I doing it? I think it could hit a point. I don't know. Like, that's could good, it, could it hit a similar thing like I said with Annie where a lot of the topical references get lost where eventually the young people in America aren't going to know who Annette was or who, let's be honest, Elvis is probably the most, like, but there's mm. other topical things. Like, we got to bake at home to watch the Mickey Mouse Club. Are they going to, or is it, are those like going to be? Panty rates, okay. no longer a thing. Yeah. But let me also ask this. You have that same nostalgia effect today where you have, you know, parents in their 30s or 40s that remember Greece as this awesome thing. Right. That now bring their kids to it. Yeah. That those kids see the things that. Oh my God. I mean, that they, they, They'll walk out with the fun music and songs and everything. Do you think the SpongeBob musical is going to be that for like our age group? It could become that. With the score by Bonner. Here's the thing though. People remember, like, I just, they're, the amount of parents, they're like, oh yeah, Grease is a fun, wholesome family musical. And I'm like, the hell it is. Yeah. Because they forget the they forget, those parts. Uh, and there's a lot of, uh, I think there's a lot of things that go over people's heads. Right. Like there's, uh, in, there's like, it's supposed to be this impliedness that the reason why... Uh, Rizzo's pregnant is because Kaniki used saran wrap instead of actual protection. And that gets lost on a lot of people. There's, you know, there's teenage pregnancy. They steal. They drink. They smoke. They do all these things that are no longer socially acceptable. Which, I mean, all of us did that as teens anyways, but... Not all of us, but... I, teens still do that. I have never stolen, I have never smoked, I have never drank, and I have never gotten anyone pregnant. Well, good for you. And I've never... We can't all be perfect, I guess. I guess so. Um, Can we talk about Twelfth Night? Twelfth Night. Yes. Let's talk to Twelfth Night. And then my, after Twelfth Night, I want to take this in a different direction. My okay. interesting way. with Twelfth Night is that a lot of people don't know how to cut it. Mm. So I've I've seen very I've seen a lot of productions of Twelfth Night because I will seek out Shakespeare's and go see them when it's feasible. Yeah, I've only seen it done well a handful of times. I because it's I just I don't really care for the story. Same. Um, I think there are better Shakespeare's out there that people should love instead. But for I think that like if I'm gonna do a Shakespeare that I know will put butts and seats, I'm doing Midsummer Night's Dream. So why do people do Twelfth Night? Then? I have it no idea. It seems to be idea. one of the more well done com- like I it, don't know. Like the three comedies it seems people do are Twelfth Night, Much Ado, and Midsummer. And why is Twelfth Night, Night in, is, that trio? in my opinion, by far the, the weakest of, of the, the three? By far. 
I just want to cover my ass real quick. Yeah. Uh, so any of my comments on Twelfth Night are strictly about the play itself, the script, uh, and nothing about any productions I have ever seen. Great. I, Thank I, you. I will fully say that I've seen... Do you, want, do you need to abstain, Tom? Nope. Yeah, I will talk about the script I've, in and of itself. I've seen like four or five different productions of Twelfth Night, and like I've laughed, and I'm like, okay, this was fine, but like it didn't do much for me. And as far as cross-dressing in Shakespeare goes... What are the weaker ones? Yeah. It's supposed to be played for comedic effect, but it's like there are way better ones where cross-dressing gets you much further. Oh, yeah. Um, yeah, I don't know. I'm just Also, Tom and I saw a really brilliant production of Romeo and Juliet at the Huntington a couple weeks ago. So I lo- Romeo and Juliet is no longer at the bottom of my Shakespeare list. It has been... Thanks for shoehorning that in. So if you were going to do, besides Midsummer, which could be on some people's list... Or much ado again could be on some people's list. If you were gonna pick a Shakespearean comedy that you think should be done more, what what would you replace it with? Uh, measure for Measure is a problem play. Yes. It is considered a dark comedy, but I think it should be done far more often because it's I love topical. Measure for measure. I love Measure for it's Measure. A great show. I think this might be an interesting way to take the discussion. If we're gonna talk about these overdone plays, what could you do instead? Measure for measure. Okay, yeah. So measure, measure, measure. do it instead of Greece. If somebody do it instead of Mutton. <laughs> instead of all of the okay. So somebody comes... every se- every company next season is doing measure for measure. So, so, so somebody comes <laughs> into your and place to the M's. So Mamma Mia, measure for measure. There you go. Well, let's see. Somebody comes into your season construction meeting and pitches Mamma Mia. What do you pitch instead? Somebody pitches Annie or Greece or Godot's Honestly, God. I would probably cave to a production of Annie. I would. You sometimes do have to do a show that you know is going to sell. Well, like, I would, and it was a formative show for me as a child actress, so I feel like I gotta pass that on. Okay. Is there? Do you have anything else you could this replace? Is a, I think it's a. That's a hard. Might be a whole question topic because for me. depends on my audience. We can't just say, oh, well, this, well, this this show swaps out evenly for this show no matter what because mm-hmm. your season as a whole. Is gonna vary yeah. based on what you're doing or goals it's or not a, whatever. Per, they're so, not perfect puzzle pieces. Okay, cool. Tom, you said did you have another? You had one more show on your list? No. I mean, I had almost main kind of on there, and I think okay. thoroughly modern Millie should be shoved down into a vault. I don't know why high schools do thoroughly modern Millie so often. It's terrible. Um, it's also a tap show, which I have no love in my heart for tap. It, um, yeah, but that, it's one of those ones where it's the plot is solved with casual racism, and it is 2019. There's a lot of issues. Yeah, there there's a lot of issues that I feel a lot of. Let's. If you want to take a show in a strangely racist direction, at least do Drowsy Chaperone, where it's played at the top of Act Two, <laughs> at, to highlight how the shows of that era solved the plot with casual racism. Well, I think the biggest issue would be not necessarily just productions of Thoroughly Modern Millie, but thir- productions of Thoroughly Modern Millie done in places that lack the necessary diversity. Oh, no, no. there's a, It's problematic, all of it. Well, all the way to the bottom. I, I, I've done my, I've done on, my research a little bit on it. I've done a little bit of research on it. I did, I've done my research on it, and if you talk... And the original actors in, in the original production that played like the two Chinese brothers said that it was an accurate representation and reflection of Asian American assimilation at that time. Yes, but when you if you don't handle it with the utmost of care and put in your research for the historical context or you don't have actual Asian American actors playing the parts, it is incredibly racist and offensive. Thank you. So that is the context which it can be viewed through. And there I are feel just like so many better shows for high schools 
to do. Yes. It's an outdated story. Um, and it's so, it offers nothing. It's like, so strange that it opened on Broadway in 2002. 2002! 2002! Yeah. That was Sutton Foster's first Broadway role. That was like her... She was the understudy Millie and she went on. And that's why. That was how Sutton Foster got her start. That blows my mind. I think, th I think that's another topic to discuss is I feel like a lot of times people fall in love with an album and fall in love with the music that sometimes they forget that musical theater is about far much more than just music. Well, also, no one knows any songs from Thoroughly Modern Millie save for um, gimme, Forget gimme. About the Boy and Gimme Gimme. That's yeah. it. Because they're both heavily featured in female like audition books, because there are, let me tell you folks, <laughs> let me let me get real Marjorie for a second. Marjorie's pulling out the soapbox like Sally <laughs> let Brown. Me, let me get real for you first with you for a second. Um, yeah, audition music if you're female sucks basically. If you are not a soprano, you are shit out of luck. Which is why I think Thoroughly Modern Millie has endured for so long because it's one of the very few belty brassy songs that shows off a range that you can get a relatively short cutting of. And I really think that's the only reason that it lives on. Is because every freshman, sophomore in high school knows she can sing Millie, so she wants to play Millie. Gimme, because gimme. I'm not, I'm not a soprano. I couldn't play that soprano role. But you know what? I could play. I can, I can sing the hell out of Forget About the Boy. Mm. Cool. Thanks, March. Tom, you said you had. Yeah, to I want to take this in an interesting direction. Okay. Uh, so a production that I would be okay, or a show that I would be okay with never seeing again for the right reasons, because yes. it was amazing and totally blew my mind. I would be okay with never seeing Romeo and Juliet again. I just want to watch that one production over and over. Yeah. So Marjorie and I were lucky enough to go see Romeo and Juliet at the Huntington last month. If mm -hmm. anybody at the uh, Huntington listens to this on the off chance, please get in touch with us at cztheater at gmail .com because Tom. Tom and I would love to talk yeah. about this with you. We are just so honored we saw this twice. We went into this with no love for Romeo and Juliet. Bottom of my list, hands yeah. down. Um, Read it as a fresh, like freshman in high school honors English, just... Pfft. Yeah, but we... It blew our minds. It was amazing. Oh. Uh, acting was incredible. Just all in all, it was an insane, insane production. It was three hours long, and Tom we and I did, it. we were, yeah. the whole, we like looked up and it was midnight, and we were like, oh my god, what? That's, that's so yeah. interesting that, you know, I think we, we would theater. We, we saw it two nights in a row. Yeah, it grabbed our, it set the tension beat one and held it all the way through the show. And so the reason that I would be okay with never seeing another production is I, it's gonna be very hard for me to go into a show to see Romeo and Juliet and not compare it to what we saw that night, mm. which I, I don't like comparing shows to each other. Right. Just because it would just be unfair to every right. It's gonna be unfair to every production we see going forward. And a lot of times, like, we think that there isn't, like, a definitive version of the show. And no, there isn't, and it, it's that. It's this one. Right. <laughs> and, and I think that can affect things. I mean, whether it's. As an audience member or as an actor or a designer, it could be like, you know, I really like that show, but it's never going to top this other production. So why Not that the try? goal of theater is to top things, but just as an audience member, it had such an impact on me yeah. that there's, I, there's just I, there, no more. Like, I, no, we walked have, out speechless and like didn't talk We had for to like walk around hour. Boston for like a half hour just not saying anything. Weird. We normally only do that after awful shows. I know. We I, just yeah. We it just it hit <laughs> we're us. We're walking so around and we're just like, but Tybalt, and with the with the sleeves, and <laughs> ah. <laughs> so I mean, does that affect your work as a performer? We rode like, home in silence, everyone. Silence. I mean, there. 
if you know me, you know how hard it is to render me speechless because I love words and I have lots of them. And I was speechless for four. We went to Denny's and we're just sitting there staring into our pancakes in silence. I think the waitress thought something was wrong. Mm. Now, does that affect your work as a performer? Because I know there are some people that are like, oh, I want to make a version of the show that was just as good as the one I saw. And they try to like copy all the choices where I think there is like another aspect where it's like, I... I, I can't get that version out of my head, therefore I don't even want to approach it because I know I'm just going to be trying to live up to that or exactly. I'm trying to create that. It's two very different mindsets of the theater artist. I think it hits us kind of, at least with me, it hit me kind of in both. And not that I want to take what I saw and recreate it and like do the same production and like copy it and everything. It made me stoked on Shakespeare. Yeah, it made me general. love Shakespeare and want to up my game on everything that I do, especially mm. Shakespeare related, just push yeah. it to the next level. Cause I wanna I wanna strive to attain that level of stuff. And I think the the parts of it that we would take from it are, oh, they kind of built tension in this way and mm. like these moments lend themselves well to each other. Like how would that help us construct other things? Yes. Yeah, and it's it how does it help us construct not I like this, I'm gonna take it and do it. it mm. Yeah, it wasn't it's, so much wow, we want to take this and cop we want to trace it and copy it in our art. It was, what can I use from what I've learned as an audience member and how I feel right now? You, what can I take to use to create this experience for someone else so it's in when like you maybe can, a different way? You can see the process behind it. Yeah. So it's not copying the result. It's trying to figure out the process. And I will say, I agree. As a director, my favorite shows are the ones that I come out of, not just wowed with the show, but making me go, I'm not working hard enough. Yes, it was absolutely. We're, yeah, we absolutely. Walk, we're like, I, it's like, I, I thought, thought my I command was, of, the, of Shakespeare was good. It I, was not. I thought I was good, and then I saw, or then I worked with so-and-so. Yeah. And holy crap, what did I realize I am nothing. And there are two ways you can take that. You can either turtle... Or you can go, no, I need to, you can see You can either there's... turtle or you can throw yourself into the entire Shakespeare canon. Yeah. yeah. Um, Wonder which one we did. Guess. No, go I, ahead. I, guess. I Look love, at my Google Drive. I love those things. Um, excellent. No, that's a great point, Tom. I think you're right. Sometimes it's like, I will not go see that show because I know it won't be as good. I, I definitely have met people that have said that. They're like, oh, I saw it on Broadway and I'm sorry, but the national tour or this community theater production is not going to be the same as the I feel Broadway like that's version. how I feel about the play that goes wrong because we saw it on Broadway yeah. and I th there's, it's, it's touring now and I don't understand how you tour with that set. And I just think when community theaters start doing it, yeah. especially with the tech elements yeah, I'm gonna be wrong. the very specific physical comedy, that's going to be a hard show that a lot of people are going to try to reproduce. People are going to get hurt. Oh yeah. I mean, there's a whole part where a platform is at a 45 degree angle and actors are trying to An elevator on. breaks on stage. Uh, mm -hmm. Set pieces fall down. It's just, it's... It's going to be a bad time. Something important I think that we should touch upon with this, though, is that while we say that, you know, I don't want it to make it seem like we're going to go out and find the best production we can and see that and be like, yep, never need to see the show again. Yeah, no. uh, Because that takes away from the work and, like, community theater as a whole. Because, mm. like... Just theater in general, really. It's, it, right. it, it's it, not something you seek, but it's something that happens. Right. It's, it's something it, that happens to you. Yeah, you, you get those shows that are just so, like, world-changing yeah. for you that it sets this new level of stuff. So that's not to say, oh, I saw um, Les Mis on Broadway, and so I never want to see Les Mis yeah. anywhere else. Yeah, that is the wrong it's mindset. It's a different no. mindset. I mean, because I've had that. Like, I, uh, I saw, like, Theater Kapow's Macbeth 
well, I thought oh, was like so was the best production of Macbeth that I've ever seen. It was my favorite piece of Shakespeare because I missed your Huntington thing, so I don't know if that would top it. But it, it didn't make me want to go, I can't do Macbeth, because they did it in such a unique way, and I would never try to copy that. It still I think that's disrespectful room. to other artists, people yeah, who look right. at the work and go, wow, that was so good, I'm going to do exactly that. Mm. Mm-hmm. But like, you know, so there can be that effect. It, it can be so good, it's like, it was so good, it inspired me to want to do more unique things, but it didn't stop me. Like, I would still go see Macbeth because I know it's a piece that you could interpret differently. Mm-hmm. I think where Romeo and Juliet is so recent, yeah. I can't go see a production of that it's for at least another six months, especially yeah, with how like phenomenal that was. But like, I will be able to go see more of them in the future. But yeah. like Tom said, it's that's something that I feel right now like I never need to see again because like, wow, we hit the holy grail. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, trying to think what else I would throw in the ring. I mean, we covered Greece. We mm-hmm. covered the really Twelfth Night. Twelfth Night. The sh- or just the show that everybody else is doing, which right now it's Mamma Mia. And I have the same thing with like. Uh, as a director, like in auditions, I could never hear "popular" again from Wicked, and I could die happy. Uh, or um, ice cream from yeah. "She Loves Me." Yeah, just everybody. Vanilla doing ice it. cream. Um, the soprano song of the season 2016. I mean, my my controversial one that I always bring out is like I never want to see Rent again. I've tried my hardest to enjoy it. Okay, listen. From a writer's standpoint, There's Jonathan of- Larson passed away before that script was done. Yes, and that's my problem. And I feel that because I have looked at my own drafts of things like that. And I'm like, wow, if I died right now, this would be it. It's an unfinished show. There's a lot, there's holes that you can drive a truck through. And at the end of the day, yes, some of the music is great, but I care more about plot and character arcs and acting. And I understand what he was going for. But I love Rent, though. But the fact that he, he died before it was finished, nobody had the cojones to try to do more work on it. Um, I love Rent, though. As a, I, as a counterpoint, though. Yes. I think Rent is one of those shows that makes a lot of people want to do theater and get interested in theater and have a role. But it's like Wicked. It's a lot of people's first love. Right. I I feel the same way about like Wicked. Like I would be okay seeing Wicked again. Wicked was my first love. Yeah. I've never seen it, but like when I was in eighth grade. I've seen it enough to not want to see it again. Like I get it. I also. But I'm not going to say don't go see Wicked because if that's what's going to take you into the theater world to get you interested into what we do. No, I guess I don't want to be... go with it. Rent is a first love. Grease is not a first love. I don't want to be gatekeeping. Thoroughly Modern Millie is not a first love. Right, no. Like, I Rent d- defined the 90s. I definitely don't want to be gatekeeping and those things and be like, ah, if your musical theater uh, iPod is just Rent, Hamilton, and Wicked, you're not a real theater person. If Hamilton was around in 2008, that... That what you just described would literally have been my entire like my entire iPod shuffle. But at the same time, I feel like there are also elements of the story that don't resonate as much anymore. AIDS isn't a death sentence, and not this. Yes, there is still like a a problem with AIDS, but there are other things. You know, crises is more relevant. Um, At the same time, yes, like I am like the starving artist but like i just feel some of the characters are whiny and like they also try to shoehorn the opera in there a little bit uh do you light my candle though it's fun to sing makes no sense just because that song came from it was a whole it was a plot point in the opera and they wanted to tie it in um you know i just feel like it's a it is a period piece but like it's our period piece you were born in 95 doesn't matter it's not your period i don't know i think as a whole, our theater generation yeah. grows up 
or is at this point where it's like, yeah, Rent was my piece. Rent like, and Wicked. Rent were, and Wicked were those the, define those us. But see, I was always the theater kid that would then go, Avenue Q won the Tony, Wicked didn't. I liked Avenue Q. It's because you're a dick. I'm cutting that. I mean, am I wrong? <laughs> no, it's because I... It's because you're the contrarian. No, I wasn't the contrarian. You've I always I, been the contrarian. I just think Avenue Q is one of the best written pieces of musical theater of the 21st century in... Be that as it may, it is, it is you the, are the contrarian. It is, it's the epitome of being in your 20s now, which I feel Rent is no longer the epitome of being in your 20s, where Avenue Q is. Okay. So again, what's what are these alternatives to doing these shows that we think need it not be done again? Like, how do you avoid putting these shows in your season or seeking out these shows? I think you have to look at the reasons that you're drawn to them in the first place and yeah. see if there are other shows that fit that bill. Mm. Where it's, all right, we need to do something women-heavy because we have a lot of little girls who want to be in theater. Jane Eyre has a really great, has really great, like, child characters in it that are in at least two songs. Um, and that's more of an opportunity to work with professional adult actors, which was always something that I appreciated as a kid, was working with uh, the adults and watching, like, the big kids do it. So there are alternatives to that. Now, as, like, a producer, the thing that's great about some of these shows, again, like, we're a... not your average theater audience, because we are, you know, people that We are the snobs. Right, we see a lot of theater, and we do a lot of theater, so, like, our tastes are... Our nerdiness runs deep. (laughs) And our tastes are a little bit more eclectic, because we've had enough of the basic shows. But... These are shows that do pull in an audience. It's the same reason why a lot of theaters do the same show every Christmas, whether it's Christmas Carol or Nutcracker. I don't understand why more people don't do Elf. I think Elf would sell phenomenally. It's, again, but like... Beloved holiday classic How do you... You do always need a show that's going to put butts in seats. Yeah, someone to keep the lights on. So how do we, as as theater producers... Find that fine balance between shows we want to do and not doing the shows that we're bored of or that don't overly interest us versus making sure we're going to have a season that's not going to bankrupt us. Because if we just do the obscure plays that we love, nobody's going to come to see them. And I think that that, there's no answer to that question and that's why we're having this conversation. That's why there are these shows that are overdone is because it's like, all right, yeah, well... We gotta play the things that we know people will go see. Like, my Netflix viewing habits, once I find something I like, I will watch it forever and never get sick of it. Yeah. And I think it's like that for a lot of people, where it's like, ask me how many times I've watched Bob's Burgers from beginning to end, because the limit does not exist. Right. A lot of, like, there's the people that are like, my Netflix subscription is $9.99 a month, so I can watch The Office. Yeah. So I think it's that concept, but just applied to theater, especially where people don't go see a lot of shows. So how do we get that audience to come take a chance on a show? Like... Uh, To take a chance on Mamma Mia, so to speak. I mean, there's definitely theater-going audience members that will only see the things they already know and things that make them comfortable. Well, those people are always going to exist. Yes, but like, how do we transition them into a regular audience member that's going to just come see shows at our theater? Is it a matter of you have to do the shows that they know and hopefully build up their trust so then you can go, hey, you liked uh, that show we did that you knew. Now come see this thing you might not know as well. And then 
challenging them slowly? Or are there, like, is... I think that's a part of it, but I also don't think everybody's open to that. I think part of it is your kind of community building. I think if you can do something or find a way to draw your audience members into feeling like they know the company Mm. and not just the show, they're more likely to come back. So, uh, like, something that the uh, American Shakespeare Center does in Virginia is for the first half hour of before the show starts, they have the actors on stage and they just sing and play music and, you know, talk with the audience members. And so what that does is it makes you feel like you know mm. the actors and you know who they are, which makes you feel more invested in them as a whole. So you could go there because they're doing Hamlet and go to the pre-show and meet all the actors and feel, you know, comfortable with it. And then, you know, just be in the area for, I don't know, what's another unknown thing? Um, Copenhagen. Like, Copenhagen. Yeah. And be like, all right, I don't know anything about the show, but, oh, you know, I know Julia's in it, and I she was in Hamlet, and I talked with her for a little bit, so I got to go see it. So I feel like, like I'm so, at that point with, like, Theater Kapow, where it's, I've never heard of anything that they've done, but I'm like... Well, I know it's going to be good, so I'm going to go see it. So let's, so, I mean, let's be honest. I mean, in the southern New Hampshire area is... White people. <laughs> You're not wrong. No, I don't think that's where Dan was going, no. though. Oh, the, I, su- <laughs> the southern New Hampshire area is, like, an okay area for, like, arts and culture. Uh, you know, I wouldn't say... Because we're a homogenous culture. I wouldn't say it's completely devoid of culture, but at the same time, you know, there's, um, you know, only so much... How long would you say it takes an average theater company to go from people, from an audience member that comes to see the shows they like to they will come see any show we put on because they like the company and trust the company? Or do not a lot of audience members get to that level? Well, I know that a few years, like I've been working at the Palace for a while now. And when we did Mamma Mia last year, that show was listed as to be announced for a really long time for whatever, like we couldn't release the rights or whatever. And I would still have people call the box office and be like, I don't know what the musical is going to be, but I'm still going to buy tickets because I know I've liked everything Carl Rajon has directed. Mm. They're like, I know that it's going to be good because it's what the palace is putting on and the palace always puts on good work. So they were comfortable putting... Right. But So Carl's been there for 15 years. Do you need 15 years? Do you need 10 years? Do you need, like, how many seasons would you say you think that you have to do shows to build an audience's trust? At least five. Five? Interesting. You, you, you're, you think it takes that long? You have to yes. do, Tom? I think you can do it in two seasons if you do it mm. strategically. Yeah. I think you, you can do it in two seasons if you are putting up shows that are at a high quality that you are proud of. Mm. Uh, And I think you also, part of that also goes into your season building where you have to do something that's kind of known to get some people, get people in. And then I think you're gonna lock people in. I think there's some people that it'll only take one show to lock them, not even a full season. Like, all right, I saw that, it was great, and now I'm gonna see everything. Theater Capows Macbeth. I would, you know, so I would good. Say, I would say two to three seasons to lock in a considerable, a, a decent number of yes. people. I'm I'm kind of in the same boat as Tom. I've always said 
you got to go like three seasons of putting on quality work to gain that trust. But all it takes is one show to ruin that. And then you have to start all over again. Like you put one stinker up there and a lot of people are like, I'm not spending my money. The last show was awful. And then you have to slowly regain that trust. I mean, there might be some people that might give you, uh, oh, well, that must have been a fluke, which would be meant you built a lot of good trust. But I think like two or three, you got to go two or three years without putting up a bad show. You have to put out high quality stuff to gain that trust. And then you can start taking your risks, which, you know, Q0 didn't follow that model. We've done original, we opened with original work. Um, and, you know, we've, not that we haven't had decent turnout, but we're also, we know what we are. We know we're going for a niche audience and we budget accordingly. If we Speaking do, of, please join our Patreon. Yes, uh, become a member become and support, a member, us support us so we support can our continue to like offer and subscribe. this. Give this, us five stars on uh, Apple Podcasts. So we can continue to offer these niche things. But if we wanted to grow and expand and be able to offer, uh, you know, like if we wanted to generate more income so we could make this a livable thing rather than, you know. I think you two are a far more trusting audience than I am. You think five, it would take you five seasons of. It would take at least two seasons of no screwing up and then something with a show that would wow me. And I don't think that that's a short term thing. Mm. Gotta look at how many shows you could do in like two or three seasons, though. Like, if a theater could do, you know, five to ten shows that you would in that period, if you saw five quality shows, wouldn't that company have gained your trust? Assuming I could see those five, assuming if I'm the average theater goer, if you saw five productions in a row at this theater that were that wowed you, would you have gained that trust? Again, like five shows that you know, that you love, that you were going to come see no matter what. Would, after five shows, would you maybe take a risk on something you didn't know? Maybe. I mean, you've seen how many shows at the Huntington? Two. And are you already at the point where you will go see more shows even if you don't know that much about them? Oh, yeah. Yes. But that is, that is different. Okay, but it only took them two shows. They are the Huntington. To be fair, it took one show. With yeah. That's true. It took so. one show. They wowed you so much that they've already gained your trust. Now, yes, if you went and you saw a clunker, you would go, you probably don't have the goodwill that would go, oh, maybe Romeo and Juliet was the fluke. But if you saw five or six good shows and then one clunker, you would assume the one the one show the clunker was the the anomaly. So how many sh- good shows do you have to do to get to the point where people think the clunker is your anomaly? Why are you bullying me? I'm, I'm not. getting yelled at, listeners. <laughs> I'm playing devil's advocate. He's, I, he's flailing his hands around. I get where Marjorie's coming from, and I think part of where she's coming from as well is the idea that you're not going to have an audience member coming to every single show for the first two seasons. Yes. True. Which is slightly different than the way that we're looking at things. Mm. Um, so, the average theater yeah. goer is not going to be like, I'm going to come to every show in a season. Mm. No one has time for that. Right. As much as I wish they did, and I was, as much as I wish I did. But yes, thank you, Tom. Okay. So, so I think defender of number, my point. Is it number of shows then? Five shows, ten shows. How many shows do you have to see before you trust a theater company? Well then that renders it moot because then it's, well, how much time would it be to pass? Like, did the board turn over? Are we talking years? Mm. Are we talk- so Do we always just, know these things? It's a vibe. Okay. It's a vibe. It's an intuition. It's... And do we all agree, though, like, it can? all it takes is one truly awful production to ruin all that trust? Depends on how much goodwill 
But mm. I think in most cases, yes. Yeah, I think absolutely. I think it, it, you have to put up high quality, to be honest, for, with everything you do, because consistent you, high quality. Yeah, you can't put up something that's eh. Yes. And then expect people to just keep. I also think you can tell when the production team has given up. Yeah. Where it's like, wow, okay, so the production team gave up two weeks before this opened and it showed. Yeah. I mean, I know this will probably come out after we've already put Julius Caesar up, but I think there's a great line in the Friends Romans Countryman speech where uh, Antony says, uh, the the good that men off do is interred with their bones. The evil lives on long after. So, like, you can... I think that's true with a theater company that if you can put out, like, these great shows after show, but then you you take that one giant stinky turd on the stage, and that smell's going to linger far more than all the great things you did. Especially if, there is, if there's, like, an equal balance. Like, yes, if you're, like, 95% great one, one clunker, but if it's, like, eh, then people oh, are going to yes. remember your mm-hmm. clunkers. As... Someone who loves to complain, and I will fully admit that I love to complain. It's more fun if you see, like, I love seeing quote-unquote bad theater for that reason. It's the same way, it's the same thing that I read the bad Broadway fan fiction. It's just, like, fun. But I am way more stingy with my compliments yeah. than I am with complaints. Mm-hmm. And I think that holds true for most people because everyone loves to complain, but very few people will admit that. yeah. And also just look how tight-knit the theater community and how fragile egos can be. You don't want to... Rip me to shreds. Yes. I want to do good work. Yeah, yeah, but there's like there's like compl- uh, constructive criticism and then there's being a whiny butthead. Yeah, no, mm-hmm. I would agree with that. There's, there's a time and a place for it, for constructive criticism. Great. And that's what gets missed a lot of the time. I mean, we've rambled on now for over 50 minutes. Which oh, I wow. think is, is, yeah, I know, it, it flew by. I think we've got... Uh, do we want some fan fiction? Or yeah, let's do some fan fiction. So, uh, we're going to take a quick break. We will uh, play a commercial for something. And then we'll come back. Marjorie will do a couple of bad Broadway fan fiction. And we'll call this an episode. Thanks, yeah. guys. Hey, Q-Zero fans. This is Artistic Associate Tom Locke coming to you, asking if you were wondering how you can join the revolution. The easiest way to join the revolution is to become a Q-Zero member today. By becoming a member, you're going to help us bring more work to you. Included with that are many great benefits, including our newsletter, merchandise, signed memorabilia, exclusive podcasts, exclusive videos, access to our new works blog, and so much more. We have two different options that you can use to become a member. One is our annual option through our GoFundMe, or we also now offer a monthly option through our Patreon, starting at as low as just $2 a month. Search Q0 on either GoFundMe or Patreon, or check out the links in the show description. Sign up today and join the revolution. And we're back, thanks to that word from our sponsors. So we are back with, I believe, is this our third round of Bad Broadway Fan Fiction? I think it is. All right. Number three, back by popular demand. Bad Broadway Fan Fiction 3. Again, uh, for those of you who might not have listened to previous episodes, Marjorie scours the internet to find uh, just some truly awful original work uh, on blogs and Tumblr and DeviantArt and all those fun websites. Uh, and Marjorie comes and finds all this 
theater-related fan fiction. She brings it. Tom and I have never heard it before, so she's just going to read it uh, dramatically to the best of her ability. We can stop for some, stop, stop for commentary. Yes, we're going to respond honestly, and I will. Uh, this is live. Find some great mood music to underscore these to help help heighten. And just in the off chance that anybody is listening that wrote any of these pieces, you should be honored. Yes, your your play is bad, and you should feel bad. We appreciate you. Thank you for providing us with this podcasting content. Yes. Um, if you can prove you wrote it, I will send you $5 and a really terrible poem I wrote. You know what? You put your work out there, and yeah. that is commendable. So good on you for that. Great. All right, Marjorie, what's the first thing you got for Am us? Am I making you guys guess what show this is? Or I mean... Yeah, we'll guess as we yeah, go. Yeah, All right. So the title of this is Five Years Later. <clears throat> huh. I wonder what it's going to be. Not what you think. Ah, I'm wrong already. Great. It's about rent, and um, Let Mark is the only character that's still alive. Well, duh. Are you ready? No. Less than a month after they got married, Rosie decided Albert wasn't right for her. <laughs> Wait, this already was a show. And broke things off. Okay. She then got together with reporter Alejandro. He really is from south of the border. They're expecting their third child now. They already have Juan and Enrique and are expecting Rosa. They would also like to have Anita, Jose, Carmen, Jesus, and Consuelo. I'm sorry, can I stop for one second? What was the first name you read? Of the kids? Yes. Anita. There was someone named like Juan. Juan. Juan, okay. Juan and Enrique. I heard Wong. And I was like, that, <laughs> something's not fitting here. Get the potatoes out, you eat. All right, please okay, continue sorry. with Bring Back Birdie. Albert ended up with Gloria, who keeps him on a short leash, a very short leash. He's gotten used to life with severe limitations on where he can go. He ended up keeping Almeilu? I don't know how to say that. A-L-M-A-E-L-O-U. I've never seen that ever. Um, it has Conrad's contract that is no in his favor because Gloria insisted on writing it. El Nail is the name of the production company. It's like his mother's name and his name mashed together. But, so it's like Renesme from the Twilight books because that's never not a terrible idea. Yeah, sure. Because <laughs> it's, it's Albert and May something like that. Thanks, I hate it. Yeah. Um, also, that sentence was, it's. Uh, I think it's supposed to be that is now in his favor, but there is a K in front of it, so it's uh, that is no in his favor. All right. Conrad came back from the army and found that a more mature woman was exactly what he wanted, and he got together with May. He still works for Albert and doesn't mind that he has to be okay with everything about Albert and Gloria. The war mellowed them out a lot. Because so, that's what war does to people. It yeah, mellows them out. Yeah. yeah. And now Conrad Birdie is cloning Albert Peterson. Kim and Ursula still scream whenever Conrad makes one of his rare appearances on TV and don't what? have any plans to grow up anytime soon. They both still live with their parents and have no plans to do anything with their lives yet. Except, like, save them. <laughs> Isn't that the millennial story? Like, Wow. Um, Mr. and Mrs. Ma- uh, McAfee still live in their house and have begun to nag their daughter about moving out. Shocker. They want her to do something with their life so they can get on with their own. Susie just smiles and tells anyone who will listen that she knew that it would never last between Hugo and Kim. Randolph is going to college now and still doesn't understand why anyone would want kids. He never plans to settle down and start a family. He likes being a bachelor too much. Wow. Finn. Thank you. Good start. Oof. Uh, wow, that might... Alright, Dan, thoughts? I like it better than actual Bye Bye Birdie. Hmm. 
but I have a Bye Bye Birdie's a sore spot in my soul, and we don't need to talk about it until we do a a podcast on bad experiences in our careers. Our theater horrors. Yeah. Um. I mean, again, I haven't seen Bring Back Birdie, but I'm assuming that's what the plot is, because musical sequels are never awful. I'm gonna be honest and say I never knew there was a sequel to My Bye Birdie. Yeah, there's Bring Back Birdie. Oh, I didn't know that. Yeah, it's an actual show. That is good to know. Yeah. I've never actually seen Bye Bye Birdie. I just thought that was funny because I, I know Dan hates it. You're not so. missing much, but if you're looking for a really weird time, watch the movie version of One Last Kiss on mute. It's so disturbing. Isn't How Lovely to Be a Woman in Bye Bye Birdie? Yes. Kim sings it? Yes, as she's okay. putting on boys' clothes. Good, same. Cool. We've all eponemed like that. Great. What's, right, ladies? Am I right? What's your next... Uh... Next one's called... Um, and this one is a little smutty, so kids, turn off the podcast. Oh, dear. Uh, this one's called The Flavors Are Not Yours to Seize. Is this... I'm one? uncomfortable. Is this about the wallpaper in Willy Wonka's hallway? Or actually, there's like a subtitle called Sexy Toes, but it's not actually in the title line. Kinky Boots. Um, it's, it's about... The, the Princess Stuart and Into the Woods have found, has found Lucinda's toe after they cut it off at the end of Act 1. I'm going to stick with my guess of kinky boots. Hi, Michael, Jeremy said sexily. Hi, Jeremy, Michael also said said sexily. Jeremy looked at Michael on the bed as he sipped his sexy 7-Eleven Slurpee. <laughs> Can I have some 7-Eleven Slurpee? Only if you come suck S-U-C-C. My sexy toes. Jeremy willing to do anything for that 7-Eleven Slurpee after Michael got a monopoly on it and became king of 7-Eleven began to suck on his sexy toes. Slurf, Slurpee Jeremy. Oh yeah, suck my sexy toes. Michael moaned as he sipped his Slurpee and weed and listened to Michael Jackson's juicy beef. <laughs> Can I have some Slurpee, Jeremy begs? I finished it. Dan left. Dan left. Dan just Dan left. Was Dan that? So my, my first question <laughs> is why was why was it that the Slurpee was sexy and not that he was sexually drinking the Slurpee? Oh no, he was both. Weren't you paying attention? I was, but okay. It did say oh, I need an adult. Wow. <laughs> Do you have any guesses on the show? Kinky boots. I'm sticking with kinky boots. <laughs> it's be more chill. Well, yeah, but like uh, none of us know be more chill, but I figured, our, I figured our listeners. All might. I know is that I just keep, oh, it's the only show I, on Broadway that I see ads. You know what? Facebook. It's what the kids are obsessed. I with. was okay with be more chill until they went to end it, and I went, oh, okay, so this is a joke to you guys too. Cool, great. Yeah, it, Sounds like you need a sexy Seven Eleven Slurpee. I, what makes a Slurpee <laughs> sexy? What? I, what I is the? De- I don't know what? what to wearing. Nobody likes be more chill. Everyone likes Be More Chill. All the teenagers like Be More Chill. Mm. All right. Are you ready for the next one? No. No. I'm not. I've ruined this. No, this one is uh, the Oregon Trail Lay Mid style. Ah, oh, all right. I'm in. Okay. I'm back in. Um, which is the title, okay. so duh. Great. Eponine Tenardier mounted on the new, though small, prairie schooner wagon. The ideal 17-year-old sat upon an old box that once helped some Caps Crackers, her favorite, though scarce, brand. The almost young woman thought, thought about what was, er, the almost young woman thought, thought about what going westward would do for her and her growing family, if there would be any adventure she could partake in with the other travelers that were in the better wagons. Everyone had a higher quality wagon except her family, the poor ones. No one really wanted anything to do with them because of this issue that their pack had. 
but Eponine really didn't care at this moment. She was perfectly content on her own during the travel. I mean, she had her brother to keep her company. His name was Gavroche. He was a spicy soul with dirty blonde locks, quite far off from the looks of the rest of the family. Eponine was the only one who truly resembled her parents, though she was actually attractive. After a while of thinking, her mother clambered into their wagon and set herself down with a fussy gab in her paling arms. Hold this child now, Eponine Thenardier! Her eyes rolled inside her head, and she took Gavroche in her slender arms, deciding not to start a quarrel with her mother today, or her father without saying it. And then, father climbed into the vehicle. He was a scruffy man with a rough, full-faced beard, sharp, cocoa-colored eyes, and a built, though gangly, manner. Those two things don't go together. Built, though gangly. No, you're one or the other. <laughs> As always, the trail of brandy lingered from his pores. That's not a sentence. What? <laughs> the trail of brandy lingered Ling from his pores. Is, it, is this monster tonight? Okay, yes. Is he sweating brandy? Uh, it's a trail. It's a trail. And it lingers. So he's like a swamp ass of brandy. <laughs> From his pores, yes. Why would you go with sense? The scent of brandy. I don't. No, he is he is swamp ass brandy. Eponine could have sworn that he bathed in the substance. The substance being the brandy that is trailing, lingering from his pores. Gavroche that. always wrinkled his nose up in a cute little fashion when he could smell his father's odor. A wrinkle that always made the girl giggle with the happiness she rarely felt. Dan, get off Facebook and listen to the goddamn story. I'm not on Facebook. His eyes scanned over his daughter and son with distaste, as their parents took no liking to them from a young age. She was surprised they even wanted to take, their, take them with them. Eponine had a younger sister, Azelma. So this follows the book, not the musical, apparently, because <laughs> Azelma was cut from the musical, and also Gavroche is not identified as the child of the Tenardiers, as he is in the book. Okay, uh, thank you for answering yeah, that. I was great. Dan and I both made the face of. No, I knew that, but I. I am a. I love Victor Hugo. I so. knew that he, in, 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 he was, but I knew that that was cut from the. Yes, it's Eponine's okay. the eldest, then Azelma, then Gavroche, and the Tenardiers are just like. No we can't do a third, so they just kind of like push Gavroche into the street. I didn't okay. know there was an Esmeralda. Asma. Azelma. Uh, I mean, Adina Menzel. Are you done? Adele Dazine. <laughs> wow, throwback. Nice. <laughs> a few years prior to this journey, the poor little fiery-haired girl had come down with a case of dysentery, something that is deadly in their times. Of course, Master and Madame Thenardier wanted nothing to do with their sick and dirty offspring, and heaved the task on none other than, well, Eponine. In the time of Zell's sickness, her sister and she had become closer than they'd ever been before. She practically spent every waking and slumbering moment with her younger king. Sadly, though, only a few weeks into the dysentery, the red-headed girl met her untimely device, hands locked with their sister on a cold December night. Wait, so Zelma's not even there? That's just a... That did nothing to move the story forward. I, I, I think... Oh, wait, 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 wait. Wait. Eponine's mind ran with this memory once she realized they wouldn't be taking her sister with them, because she's dead. Dead. What? Why would you... Okay. Her parents hadn't even mentioned the thought of it, and this made her a little angry with herself that she didn't ask about it. Though they'd probably refuse. She's dead. She's dead. She's dead. Right? But she's dead. Do you want to, like, haul the corpse out west with you, Eponine? Like, what's the matter with you? Her eyes scanned through the canvas and out to look at the other wagons sitting on the wide horizon. Andre Ross and Pum... Pum... Oh my god. Confer. Confer. I don't think it's going to no, be a story confer. long time. No, it's Confer. Uh, two boys she'd always wanted to know, but never had the chance to because of her status. They seemed kind enough, and as if they wouldn't care about 
and as if they wouldn't care of the different caliber she held, the only problem being their guardians or parents. Okay, wait. Hold There's on. no punctuation in that sentence. They're all on the Oregon Trail. Yes. Yes. Mm-hmm. So Injaris and Confifi are at a higher level. Bonfifi. I'm very lost. What? Are we in France? No, we're in America. No, because we're all Westward. Yeah. Once, when she was younger, about twelve. How old is she now? Isn't didn't they just say she was thirteen? So like. Okay, so last uh, year. So last year. So last year, she wandered over to Comfer's long ca- log cabin by accident and got scolded by his father to never come over there again. She could be- see in the window of the cabin the boy. His eyes were glazed over with something as he watched the scene. Sorrowfulness, perhaps? Heartache? Was there a possibility that he wanted to get to know her as well? It occurred to her that maybe this trip would be the opportunity, the one to finally make some friends. The only thing she had to do was not getting caught, and she was a good sneak. One last glance out of the draping of the wagon, her father climbing into the front to start the oxen. Start the oxen? Just rev up them oxen. Yeah. Um, I don't know, my ox won't turn over. <laughs> I need to jump the ox. Does anybody have a jumper cable? Um, I, I've given up on this story. I'm sorry, I checked out. I mean, I'm still in. Like, I got and questions. Okay. Her father clambering into the front to start the oxen, and they were off into the vast prairie with everyone else behind, beside, or in front. They were off on the Oregon Trail. Okay, so Confifi lives in a log cabin. <laughs> yes. But is apparently the next step up from wherever Ebony is living. Are they the equivalent of living out of the car for the day? Like, are they just living out of the wagon and, like, calling it Maybe they good? live out of a Lincoln log cabin, and that's the difference. So, okay. I just, I, uh, I don't. I, don't. I'm... I like how the wagons were beside, behind, or in front of them. As if they could be anywhere else. It's like a herd of wagons going, as opposed <laughs> to like a line. Well, actually, uh, wagon dynamics of the Oregon Trail is actually pretty uh, fascinating because they function like an accordion, so like they yeah. stretch out and then catch up at the end of the day. Yeah, right. Marcus. Thank you, Marcus Parks from last podcast on the left. I would love to hear you do something on wagon trail, like trail wagon dynamics, even though Ben and Henry shut you down. All right, are we ready for the last one? Last one. Here we yeah. go. I'm just going to launch into this because it's oh, a lot. Oh, no. If you're starting with that, that's not a good sign. Does it's only 236 words. Okay. Can we, okay. we don't get a title? Random stories featuring the cast of TMM. Once upon a time... TMM? <clears throat> Sorry. Once upon a time, there was a mine who loved pickles and flashlights. Her hobbies were eating daffodils and assaulting pens. She had always wanted to be the first mine in space, but the mine toilet crushed her dreams. One day, she went to buy a rainbow nutshell when she bumped into her friends Bob and Bob Jr. Bob was shopping for a baby so he could name it Bob III. Just then, the mime saw some lungs in aisle three and she gave them to Trevor Graydon III. Just then, the heir started selling her some pie for $90. Then she said, do you want a present? And then Trevor Graydon III said, I want a baby so I can name it Bob. The mime kissed him passionately for at least three seconds. Then he said, I'm gonna buy a supermarket. Then he got distracted by a butterfly and said hi to his friends, Jimmy and Millie, who were happily searching for air. Then the mime went over to Millie, the mime offered her some lungs, and she said, I don't want lungs, I want a rainbow. Just then, Jimmy gave Millie a blanket to put on her spaghetti tacos. Then Superman came flying in with a spatula so he could swap the nation's capital, Washington. And then Jimmy flew down to Jupiter, and Millie never saw him again. The end. 
I don't even know how to process what we just heard. So some of these are, I've come across some that are labeled as like satire. So it's like people riffing on bad Broadway fan fiction and I don't read those. Uh, this one is 100% serious. I, so what show do you think that was from? Thoroughly Modern Millie. That's my like guess. Kind of. Um, oh, I need some air. I just. I. They threw. Uh, they just threw words together. I don't even. I. I. And on that note, thank you for listening to the. Q Zero Theater Cast. Uh, this is your artistic director, Dan Pelletier, here with Marjorie Boyer. Sexy toes. Tom Lott. No, thank you. And as we always say, support local theater and join the revolution. <laughs>